Well, as we come to consider God's word this morning, uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have such an amazing testimony of the things that you have done. And as we examine further the life of the prophet Elisha, we pray that you will continue to strengthen us and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our next instalment in the life of Elisha places him once again in an altogether different context. In chapter 3, we read of how Elisha had been found in the company of kings and army generals and how his prophetic words had been used to direct the affairs of four nations, Israel, Judah, Edom and Moab. But from such dizzy heights, chapter 4 places Elisha back into more humbler circumstances. In a small country town of no great fame, within a small home in that small country town, with a homeowner of no great status of fame at all, but rather a widow and very poor. So instead of themes of royalty and war and strategy of chapter 3, we now read of humility and desperation in this first part of chapter 4. But chapter 3, if you remember, also spoke to us about things that were empty and needed filling and were filled by God, particularly those ditches that had been dug that were miraculously filled with water flowing over the desert. Now let me go back to that just for a moment. You might have wondered where in the text of chapter 3 that command from God to go and dig ditches can be found. I should have let you know that I was working from the New King James Version of verse 16, which says those words, a translation that's quite different to what's found in the English Standard Version that we regularly use. So this text relating to Elisha has to do with empty things being filled. But the setting, as I've just noted, is totally different, bringing to mind a similar miracle performed by Elisha's predecessor and mentor Elijah, which we looked at last year, way back in 1 Kings 17. Well, what then of the story? And what do we learn from it? Let's go straight into it and consider three aspects of the story before considering three applications. First, from verse 1, note the extent of the widow's extremity. The extent of the widow's extremity. The text tells us straight away that this woman was not only a widow, but also the widow of a prophet and was therefore anything but well off. To make matters worse, she also had two children to care for. And her husband's death had handed her an unpaid debt. Financially speaking, this woman had her back well and truly against the wall. No doubt she'd been struggling on with her situation, doing her best to keep the husband's creditor at bay. But now the time had come that she had no doubt feared would come. All she had left was one single jar of oil and everything else had been whittled away from her. To make matters worse again, this man who was her creditor was far from being compassionate and understanding, but instead was a tyrant and a bully. 
who was determined to get his money no matter what and soon resorted to threatening to take the woman's sons from her as the law allowed to become his slaves. No doubt for any mother, let alone a mother in this position, this was going to be a difficult pill to swallow. Sadly, when we read the rest of the Old Testament, we find that this situation should never have come about. This was not the way that life was meant to be, lived in the promised land with God as their king. You see, although there was no social security system in Israel, God had written into his laws instructions for his people to follow that would ensure that the poorer classes of society would always be looked after. There are plenty of verses in the law which describe the treatment of widows. But this was a generation who did not take God's word seriously. This generation had their backs pretty much turned against the Lord, and so the weak and the poor suffered. You see, this poor woman's situation was a picture of what life in the land was like when God's word was ignored. When the provisions that God laid down for caring for the weak and defenceless are ignored, then these people suffer. Her situation is a picture into the spiritual depravity of the nation. What kind of people neglect a penniless widow and allow her children to be enslaved? Only a nation where God and his word is being neglected. But the Lord God of Israel, being a God of compassion, sent his servant Elisha to provide her with what she needed. Just as many years later, another greater than Elisha would look upon others in similar plights. Whether they be leper or widow or ill and meet their desperate need. And there's a challenge for us here, isn't there, in this woman's extremity. As God's people, we must reflect his concerns for the defenceless and the helpless, both in the body of the church as well as those outside of it. Like our compassionate God and his servant, the prophet, that we must seek to help those in need whom the world may reject. For when the word of God is at work in the people of God, then the people of God reflect the character and the purpose of God as revealed in his word. And if this widow's plight was a picture of the tragic state of the land when God's laws are neglected, it's an even sadder situation to see the church of God neglecting the word of God so that its weaker members are left on the sidelines. That too is a death. That too is a desperate situation. For if God cares about and for those in need, then our gaze cannot be averted from them if we claim also to belong to Him who so cares for them. Second, from verses one and two, note the direction of the widow's entreaty. Now verse 1 tells us that she cried out to Elisha, the man of God, and by doing so, she showed clearly where she believed her help would come from. She had nowhere else to turn, and her only help was God and his prophet Elisha, reminding us that often our extremity is just God's opportunity. And when Elisha began to suggest various strange things to do, even then she simply trusted what the prophet said to her and got on with it, no questions asked. Can you imagine the scene? The woman, 
pouring out her story to Elisha over the breakfast table? And his response? Go and see the neighbours and collect their jars. She could easily have turned round and said to Elisha, And what help is a load of jars if I've got no oil? But she didn't say that. She promptly obeyed. She obtained the empty jars from the neighbours, and she followed the prophet's instructions. That's faith. That's taking God at his word and acting on it. And in the context of two kings, there is something even more remarkable about this woman. Given that the religious culture of the day involved the popular worship of Baal, the situation could have been that by turning to her neighbours for help in this way, that they suggested she pray to Baal or go to the local Baal shrine and make a sacrifice. For Baal was said to be the provider of rain and fertility and food. But despite the culture of the day, this poor woman went to the only one who could help her, the Lord, the God of gods, the King of kings. He alone could solve her desperate situation. You see, this family, that is, this woman and her late husband and their children, represented what life in the promised land with God as king could be like. It was a life of trust in him and great blessing from him. And they continued to have faith in him despite the peer pressure from their society around them. I guess it would have been very tempting to switch loyalty to Baal. They might look with envy at their neighbours' full cupboards. But not this family. No, they were sticking with the true God, despite the severe problems they were having, for only God could help them, and they put their faith in him. Third note from verses 3 to 7, the solution to the widow's difficulty. Elisha had a plan to get the woman out of debt, and his plan was not based upon careful financial management of her assets, although it could be said that it did involve management of her last asset in a different way. That plan, as we've heard, was gathering all the jars she could from neighbours and friends. And the woman was able to take her last drops of oil and pour them, and keep pouring them, into as many jars as she'd been able to gather. It was a miracle, of course, and the miracle was that the oil just kept pouring and pouring, beyond all realms of logic which state that when you transfer the contents of one jar of oil to another, you are more than likely to lose an amount of oil rather than multiply it. The miracle will no doubt remind you of something that Jesus did on two occasions in the Gospels. The stories of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 7,000 have a similar bottom line, that Jesus, on both occasions, took what was there and multiplied it. He took little and he made it much, just as Elisha did here. But this incident also reminds us of Elijah's miracle in 1 Kings 17 for a widow with just one son and just a small jar of oil and flour. It reminds us that the Spirit of God was truly with Elisha in the way he had been with Elijah. And now anything Elijah could do, so could Elisha. But there's more to note here, isn't there, than that? Surely the story's main concern is about the oil for this widow. So for a few moments, let's think on this oil which is so often used to symbolise the grace of God in the Old Testament, in these matters 
that we should know. For one thing, note there was a sufficient amount of oil. The problem in putting the oil into the jars was not the lack of oil, but the lack of jars. The oil stopped flowing when the jars had run out. It was not that there were plenty more jars, but no oil to fill them. Had there been a thousand more jars, there is no reason to suspect that the oil would ever have run dry. And God's grace is like this never-ending supply of oil. It cannot be measured. It will not run dry. It is for all who are empty and for all who can't pay. And while this grace is effective for all who believe, there's sufficient grace in God's storehouse to cover everyone in the whole world, if everyone in the whole world believed. It's not that there is just a measly bit of grace that gets handed around and divided between a few. Not at all. There is grace sufficient enough to cover every sin of every person if God so willed. The problem is not with the supply. God has no lack. Note also that the oil reminds us that there's a need for empty vessels for it. You cannot pour oil into jars that are already full of Vegemite or jam. And so you also cannot pour grace into people who are full of themselves or full of their sinful desires. You cannot receive anything from God if you don't come to him in the first place or if you come to him with your hands already full. Only empty jars can be filled. Only empty lives can be filled. The rich young ruler came to Jesus asking for eternal life, but missed out because he would not let go of that which already filled up his life. The church of Laodicea in Revelation 3 is portrayed as being so rich and so full of themselves that Jesus was on the outside of the church. Of the two men who went to the temple to pray in Luke 18, we know that one went in so full of himself and his own self-importance that he received nothing from the Lord, while the other who came in empty went away full. See, when we come to God full of our own self-righteousness or goodness or riches, we end up receiving nothing. But when we come empty and in need of grace, when we come like the hymn writer saying, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling, then we are in the position of being able to receive what we cannot manufacture or merit. Then we're also reminded that grace is for salvation and for life. The oil was sold to pay off the debt and to provide for the widow and her sons. So it is with grace. On the cross, Jesus paid our debt with his own blood. And by the grace of God, we are pardoned and we are released from the debt of sin. This is great news, but this grace does even more than that. It not only puts us in the right with God, it also enables us to live by grace. Being released from the debt is just the beginning. It's not just that God gives us grace to cover our sins, although that in itself would be wonderful. God also gives grace for all of life, so that even when we do fall into sin, there is more grace given. And then when we face every trial, every pain, every disappointment, every frustration, every hour, he still gives more grace, so that we may say not only, there but for the grace of God go I, but also we might say as Paul could say, his grace is sufficient, his power is made perfect in weakness.
Well, all these observations are useful and helpful. What lessons do they teach us? Three things. First note that there is a lesson about small matters. There's a strong theme through the whole of Scripture that God loves to use small things. A jar of oil, a little boy's lunch, a stick in the hand of his servant, a slingshot and stones, and a trumpet. It seems to be God's specialty that he can put to very good use these insignificant things to bring about what he desires. Even the little things that we have that we consider too little for God to even be concerned with or even to notice are in the end not too little for God. The New Testament tells us that God delights to use the lowly and despised things of the world to shame the wise. The Old Testament says that, do not despise the day of small things. And this is a lesson in itself to ensure that we do not disregard anyone's offering or gift and that we do not overlook what even the youngest and the smallest among God's people can contribute to the kingdom of God. We'll notice this again when we come to Naaman in chapter 7 who went to Elisha because of the testimony of one insignificant Israelite slave girl. We note it too in the gospel story of the feeding of the multitudes that it was one small boy's pre-packed lunch that became the food that was multiplied and shared. Think how it was the widow who put in two tiny coins of the least value that captured the attention of our Saviour. Never fall into the trap of thinking that you must do something big for God or that only the big things count. Remember that our God can and will use your contribution, however small, however meagre. Second, there's a lesson here about money matters. In The Creditor, we meet something that reminds us of one way of the many in which mankind sins against God and against each other. We meet here a man who is so determined to receive what he is owed from this poor widow that he will do whatever it takes to get his money, even if he walks all over this woman. The world is full of people like that. You know as well as I do that money is often the driving force and motivator for many criminal acts that make our headlines. And it's not money that's at fault here. Money is neutral, neither good nor bad. But the love of money, says the Apostle Paul, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so this desire to have money drives people to ever only see everything through the eyes of profit and loss. Scripture therefore encourages faithful and generous stewardship of what God has given to us. A stewardship with Hebrews 13.5 in mind, keep your life free from the love of money. Third, there's a lesson here on heavenly matters. Finally, here in this poor widow, this debtor, we are also reminded of our inability to pay God back for what we owe him. See, sin puts us in debt to God. Sin robs God of his glory. Sin is the breaking of his law, and he has the full right to say to each of us, pay me what you owe. 
But while, like the widow, we are unable to pay, God in grace comes and says, You can't pay, so I will meet your debt. With sinful man, there is always the demand for more. People will take from you whatever you have. But with God, there is abundant and overflowing mercy. When you cannot pay the debt, he pays the debt. The believer will also be set for life because his grace releases us from debt. When you cannot pay the debt, he pays the debt. When we were far off and with no hope, excluded from his family, he sent his son to pay that debt in full, releasing us from being debtors and putting in our mouth the message of his abundant grace and mercy so that we might pass it on to others who also realize that they too owe an eternal debt to God that they can never repay unless someone pays it for them. You might wonder, then in closing, why our New Testament reading this morning was taken from John 7 and not John 6, where Jesus multiplied the little boy's lunch and fed the multitudes. I chose John 7 and because it gives us this image with which we close. Jesus is the source of all grace. He is the fountain. He is the one who supplies. He is the one who is the source of life that pays our debt. This grace of which we speak this morning comes from him. And so it is in John 7 that we read that he once said of himself, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There's grace for all who will come. There's abundant grace. There's saving grace. There's keeping grace. There's grace for salvation. There's grace for life. And it's all amazing grace. Do you know it? Have you tasted it? Will you share it? Let's pray together. Now, God and Father, as we come to thank you for the wonder of what you have left us in this story this morning of this widow and her extremity and how you sent your prophet to meet her need. So we thank you that you came to us in our extremity, that when we were dead in trespasses and sins, you sent your son in the likeness of sinful flesh to suffer, bleed and die in our place. And you raised him up to new life, even to your right hand side, declaring that salvation is free and full because of him who has purchased it for us. Here this morning we've considered your grace and we thank you for its amazing nature that you would do this for us when we were in a worse predicament than this woman. So grant that we might hear your word, cling to Christ, find in him the fountain of life, come with empty hands, praying that you might fill them, empty lives, praying that you might fill them and cause us to know this grace amazing 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.